Welcome to the Jason Tim Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day to come hang out and talk some basketball with me and with Tommy. Tommy, what's up, man? How you doing? Same old, man. Same old. Just uh, firing the people up on Twitter. You know you know how it goes. You got yourself in uh, quite a little shitstorm that we've got to deal with. Uh, yep, yep, yep. That's, um, I didn't expect things to go that way, but look, man. Steph's not going to play well. I'm going to call him out for it. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to uh, do a serious grown-up podcast about the NBA Western Conference today. But I do want to get started with uh, this this uh, situation you've gotten yourself into with with Warriors Twitter. Because I do actually think it's interesting. And and before we actually talk about it, I want to start by making a point about being a fan of, of a player. Because I do think that it's important to acknowledge that that's a normal part of the experience of being a fan. If you're going to watch NBA basketball and you're a fan of NBA basketball, you're going to naturally gravitate towards certain players and you're going to dislike other players. I'm a huge LeBron James fan and I greatly dislike James Harden, for instance, that's just two random examples. And that sort of, you know, bias, I I have to acknowledge, otherwise I'm never going to have any hope of trying to come back and find my center. And uh, the reality is, is that it's going to cover, it's going to, I'm going to have like rose colored glasses towards anything that I originally see with LeBron and the exact opposite to anything I see with James Harden. And I think we are obligated if we're going to try to be, you know, grownups about this to try to at least attempt to see the other side of any of these sorts of topics. And it's been interesting for me to see you the last couple of days, just saying like, Hey, like Steph hasn't played well in a little while. He's a little guard. You know, I'm a little bit worried about what this means for him moving forward and to see people say ridiculous things that you're like, you know, a half joking, but people saying things that you're like some sort of clutch operative and that you're a fake Golden State fan. And clearly you're just, you know, that you have some major problem because they can't fathom the idea that you as a Steph Curry fan might say something that they disagree with. And, and I hate I hate that. I think it's I think it's a terrible foundation for any sort of conversation. And the reality is, is like, if you disagree, tell us why you disagree. And chances are, if we're as crazy as you say we are, it's going to bear out in the results. And then have some fun with it. Talk some trash. We're good sports. I mean, at the end of the day, this is sports. It's not politics. It's not anything that serious. Have some fun with it. I, I had a classic example of this happened to me last year in the playoffs. After uh, game four against Denver, I made a comment that I thought LeBron had lost some confidence in his jump shot. I thought that he was starting to doubt himself as he was going up. And I thought it could potentially be a problem for them moving forward. And then I was proven wrong. Like he shot the lights out in game six and executed or game five and executed Denver. And then literally shot 42% from three in the finals. And I had to own up to the fact that I jumped the gun on that and I was wrong, but who cares? Like no one's perfect in this regard. And it, it bothers me that people have that sort of expectation so for starters, why don't you brief everybody on exactly what you were trying to say about Steph and what got everybody so upset? So I think an important way to look at it, and it's hard to convey like context and tone over Twitter. I obviously was like feeding the beast a little bit after a while when people kept coming after me and saying, you know, oh, you're an idiot. I'm like, okay, I'll just, I'll lean into this a little bit. But my, my general point is that if Steph Curry isn't Steph Curry 2014 to 2017, 18 Steph Curry, then all of these roster additions on the margins, which I think the Warriors did a very good job with considering circumstances, considering Clay goes down and then they add Oubre, uh, Bazemore and Wanamaker are really nice veteran pieces. They have some nice young guys. We'll see how Wiseman looks. I'm a little bit, 
I'm skeptical. I think there's going to be a bit of learning curve, but he's a rookie, so let's expect it. But point being, none of these moves matter if Steph Curry isn't top three player Steph Curry. The thing Mm -hmm. I care about as a fan is titles. I don't care about anything else. I want to win NBA championships. And if Steph Curry isn't the top three guy that he used to be, very clearly used to be, then all these conversations are moot. Um, and, And I think it's, you know, people want to look at LeBron, how LeBron's aging, how Durant may begin to age. Um, and you pointed this out briefly, Steph's a small guard. It's different for him, right? He, his game is based on quickness and agility and being able to create the slightest margins of separation uh, because he is that much shorter. Now, he does have maybe the quickest release ever that we've seen from a jump shooter, but if defenders are now six inches closer to him, that margin's a little bit smaller, and the shooting percentages drop maybe two to three points, which might not seem significant, but it is significant when you're playing the de- best defenses in the league. And so... My point has really been, out of most of the stuff that we've seen from Steph Curry after the Western Conference Finals, it hasn't looked great, right? It still looked like, oh, he's probably a top 10 player, right? Just through impact alone. But is he a top three guy? I don't know. And when we did our our player rankings, I still had him at two. um, And a lot of that was based off the one Toronto game that he came and played um, in the regular season right before COVID hit. I thought he looked awesome that night. And it had nothing to do with whether he was making or missing shots. He was getting to his spots easily. He was creating. He looks quick. He looks super quick. Mm-hmm. He looks fry. And maybe, look, maybe him looking slow in the first preseason game or relatively slow is him just not having played basketball in nine months. That could easily be it. Um, but like I said, it's hard to convey that stuff on Twitter. And as soon as I say anything remotely that's not like Steph Curry is the best player of the last 20 years, then I'm going to get crushed. And I know that. Um, so, yeah, I lean into it sometimes. But my only point is he needs to be a top three guy or a top five guy for them to have honestly any shot of even making like the Western conference finals this year. Um, And he would have to be the best player in the league for them to even have a chance of winning the championship. So those, that's what my concern is rooted in. Right. And we just haven't seen it in a while. And I think that's a lot of it too. It's been, you know, 18 plus months since we've actually seen him be that guy. So it's, it's tough to really project where he's going to go, especially when he turns 33 in a couple months now, he turns 33 in March. Yeah, I 100% agree with the premise of the idea of what might be happening to Steph Curry. Smaller guard, aging, he's in a position where he's going to have more offensive responsibilities than he has basically since 2013 or so. So I I understand the pathway in which you could, uh, you know, eventually see a decline from Steph Curry. Where I would push back is that I'm not really... I'm not really thinking it's fair to accept the most recent examples of him playing basketball as evidence. Uh, For instance, in the 2019 finals, Steph was kind of retooling on the fly as a result of injuries. Very similar thing happened to LeBron in 2015. A lot of the reason why I think his efficiency tanked in that finals is because he was accustomed to playing basketball a certain way all season with Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving. And then they dropped uh, to to injury. And all of a sudden, in the middle of an NBA finals against a 67-win team with the MVP against one of the best teams in the league, he had to completely relearn how to play with that team, and it took time. And, it, and as a result, I think that he had some struggles there on the offensive end. And then the same thing uh, happened with Steph in 2019. I, you know, he missed a lot of shots. Uh, he, he struggled to get separation, but he was playing against a really, really good defense, and he was playing in a situation where he had to play with different players than he was accustomed to playing with all season long. So that would be where I'd give him some, some slack in that regard. Sure. You had mentioned on a couple of occasions – that his shooting percentage since the 2019 finals, like over that span, I, I can't remember how many games it was. Do you have some numbers on you by any chance? It's, it was not, like, a, it's not significant, but I mean, so he, he shot uh, 41% from the field, 34% from three in the finals. Um, 
he shot 20% from three last year in five games. Um, and then I, I think he had one pre- good preseason game last year um, out of, you know, the four or five that they played um, just in terms of the percentages. Right. Um, and, and a lot of it in the finals, he was missing open looks, which mm-hmm. is weird for him. Um, so you could just say, you know, it's a significantly small sample. Shouldn't look too much into it. But is it also a sign of him one him getting older and now his legs wearing out quicker in games and those open looks don't go down at the same clip that they used to. Cause that's a real thing, especially for jump shooters. Um, you know, especially as he takes on more offensive responsibility as you're pointing to. And mm-hmm. in those finals, he had to take on more offensive responsibility. He was creating basically everything because of how bad the roster was. Um, and I think that led him to be more tired and to miss more open shots. Um, and I don't see if that is any indication he's going to have almost as much responsibility this year. Um, like a, the Warriors have made some nice additions, and I and I liked a lot of the additions they've made, but it's still not a roster on the level of what he's played with the last you know three years where he's been healthy. Um, so I, I think that would be more my cause for, mm. for concern than anything. It's just been so long since he had to play this type of role where he's like, he's got to do everything. It's going to be him and Draymond basically doing most of the creation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, your points are valid for sure, right, about comparing the 2015 finals and 2019 finals. That Warriors ro- roster was god-awful. Uh, by the end of those finals, they didn't have, if you look up and down that roster, it's like literally seven of the 10 guys that were playing. If you're not including clay, uh, aren't in the league anymore. And that includes young and old guys. So look, mm-hmm. that was a really bad roster. Um, and he should be given some grace for that. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be looking too much into those numbers. Um, but look, you know, the, he's been struggling shooting recently, which is weird for the greatest shooter of all time. And we mm-hmm. only have 12 games over the last 18 months. So that's what I'm going to look at. Right. That's the only way I can be fair. So. so when I'm so essentially like I I had a, I got into a big arg- argument with Jeremiah about this last year because he was projecting LeBron's downfall based on the idea that there was nobody at age 35 who had produced at that level. Sure. And my counter to him was like, yeah, I get that. But I mean, this is a guy who's used to being the best at everything his whole life. So I, I what I always asked Jeremiah to do was wait for evidence, wait for evidence, wait for evidence. I tweeted about this yesterday. The burden of proof is on other people to prove why these guys have fallen off. We cannot, you know, essentially project their downfall before it happens. So when it comes to Steph, I guess what I would say is the evidence that I would look for that he has started that downward trajectory would be based on a larger sample size over the course of the season. And the example I would use would be what happened to me in my second year of college. So the summer between my first and second year playing basketball, I broke my foot. And as a result, I had to take – it wasn't even that significant of an injury. I was out for, I think, three months. And I came into training camp or whatever as my first basketball activity in three months. So it was tough because I was going against guys who were in much better shape than me. And I, and I had put on some weight. And I, I was getting back into the flow of things. And I remember that season when we started playing games, I got off to a really rough start. And there was actually a stretch early in the season where the coach took me out of the starting lineup for two games based on the idea that I had not been rebounding, which was something that I had done really well the previous season. And he was doing it to send a message, I think, to the team and to myself that I just to kind of light a fire under me and, and to kind of get it going again. And I ended up making the all-conference team that year. I played really, really well at the tail end of the season. And I attribute a lot of my early season struggles to just being away from the game for a while and the time it takes and the rhythm that you have to build through playing a lot of basketball games over an extended period of time 
so that to, so that you really, really get into your routine. And I think, I think we see a lot of guys do this. Like LeBron is famous for kind of trying to build up into his postseason runs and, and things along those lines. So if Steph Curry, you know, after two, after two days rest in the 23rd game of the season against the middle of the pack defense, when he should theoretically have fresh legs and be in good shape and be ready to go out and light them up and he doesn't do well and it's part of a larger trend, that's when I think we can start having that conversation. But just that would be the that would be where I would push back against what you're saying. But I 100 percent agree. I I see where the skepticism arises from. I understand. I am. We're going to talk about the Warriors as a whole here in a minute, and I'm going to explain why I am less optimistic about them than other people. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Steph Curry is go, about to go from basically not playing competitive basketball for you know what, almost 500 days, basically not playing, like very inconsistently playing. Mm -hmm. And then now he's going to hop into being in one of the biggest offensive roles he's going to have carried in his entire career. So that, that that, that could very well end up manifesting in him either breaking down. That's my big thing that I'm looking out for with him is not so much that he'll play poorly, but that he'll succumb to injuries, miss 15 to 20 games, and end up missing the playoffs just by virtue of a similar path to what happened to the Lakers LeBron's first year. You know what I mean? Yep, totally. No, I mean, yeah, I, I think I do share some of those concerns. So we want to move to the more Warriors right now. Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess, you know, with, that, with all these teams, I always look at it in, through the lens of, you know, how it could go right and for how it could go wrong. And, yep. you know, for instance, like we look at Brooklyn and we'll talk about them on Friday, like, there's a million ways to perceive how that could go extremely well. They and have then they're, the highest ceiling maybe, but they might also have the lowest floor if it doesn't go well. They are a super interesting team. Exactly. So so with the Warriors, I want you to start because you're, you are an optimist. I want you to start by telling me how this Golden State Warriors season could go right and what their ceiling is. Okay. Um, so I think just to kind of to, to preface everything, I think they probably will struggle a little bit out of the gates. And a lot of that will probably be based on Steph and Draymond, too, to a certain extent, regaining rhythm. You know, those guys mm-hmm. haven't played a lot of – Draymond played last year, but he wasn't playing serious basketball. Um, and Steph obviously hasn't played in a while. Um, so I, I – and I've been saying this, you know, for a couple of weeks now. I think they will struggle out of the gates. Um, the pre- That first preseason game actually did make me a little bit more optimistic from a team standpoint. Um, I thought their defense looked really good against a good offense. Um, I thought they looked really good de- defensively. They're really long. They could be really active. Um, and, I mean, Draymond wasn't even out there, and they still looked you know, pretty solid defensively. So I think early on they might actually have to win a lot of games off the strength of their defense, um, which is not what I would expect from this team kind of entering the offseason uh, before they kind of made some, some moves. But looking at it now, I think they actually do have a chance to be a top-10 uh, defense. And both Steve Kerr and Draymond have kind of projected that same energy. They said, you know, we've got a long way to go, but we think we can grow and be really special. Um, so to be as entirely optimistic as possible, I think the ceiling is a title for this team, right? They would have to have a lot of things go right. Basically everything. you got to get at least 60 good Steph Curry games to make the playoffs. Uh, you got to get he- healthy Draymond and then all of the, or most of the young guys take a step forward. Wiggins takes a meaningful step forward. Um, Oubre is a consistent second, third score. Uh, Wiseman is able to give you 15 to 20 good minutes a game at the center spot, even as a rookie. And then I actually have a lot of faith in, in most of the role guys off the bench. Baysmore, Wanamaker, Pascal, um, even Damian Lee for spot minutes. Um, I think a lot of those guys can be rotation level players for a playoff team. Um, so 
you know, they would, like I said, they would have to have a lot go right. Um, they would probably have to have some type of Lakers injury. Um, but if, if things do go how I think they can, meaning that Steph is still a top five guy, um, and then all of the young guys, like I said, make meaningful improvements, nobody in the playoffs would scare me besides the Lakers. That'd be the only team, especially out West. Um, the East is a little bit more of a toss up because I think a lot of the East teams right now are wild cards, and we'll get into that on Friday. Um, but is if, if the Lakers aren't fully healthy, um, I honestly don't see any team come playoff time that would be better than the Warriors. Once again, huge qualifier if Steph Curry is still a top five player. And it, it all comes down to that at the end of the day. Because if he is, then great. The sky is the limit. And it always will be as long as he's that guy. Um, but that's where most of my skepticism is held at this point. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, uh, I think this season, you know, the optimistic view would be a version of what happened to the 2018 Cavs. Because I, I remember on Twitter vividly around the time that the, that the Rockets took a 3-2 series lead and Chris Paul got hurt. Yep. I said that if the Rockets manage to knock out the Warriors and they go into the finals to play against LeBron's Cavs with just James Harden, I think that the Cavs would have beat them. And I said that in the moment because I thought that LeBron was capable of winning that head-to-head matchup with James Harden by such a wide margin that it would make up for a lot of the other deficiencies on the Cleveland roster. And you were assuming no CP3 in those finals? No CP3 because a a hamstring injury, you know, like I've had one hamstring injury in my life and I remember consistently re-injuring it and a lot of other issues. Like it's a huge pain in the butt. So, but the point is, is that like there was a version as flawed as that roster was where the 2018 Cavs could have won the title based on the strength of having, in my opinion, the best player in the world and some injury luck. Chris Paul getting, getting knocked out. And that team somehow upsetting the 2018 Warriors. Now it didn't happen, and they ended up getting absolutely railroaded in the in the finals. And that very well maybe end up end up being what happens to this Warriors team. But that would be the path: Steph Curry elevating himself to that first or second best player in the league type of level, playing that way consistently, being the better alpha in the early round playoff series, allowing himself to beat teams that had better records. And then ending up in a late round playoff series against a team that's worn out from some other fight and having a chance to upset, which for the record is a completely legitimate title because part of winning a title is winning the war of attrition. So they'd have to win the war of attrition. They'd have to have Steph Curry play at an extremely high level, and they're not going to be as good offensively as the 2018 Cavs, in my opinion, which I'll explain in a minute. So that means that they would end up having to defend extremely well. And I think a lot of that is dependent on Draymond, right? I mean, I've, I've been talking about Steph, but a lot of it's dependent on Draymond too. And I, mm-hmm. early indications are that he looks really good. He looks like he's in really good shape. Um, and as long as he's in good shape, I don't really doubt his impact much, especially with the length mm-hmm. that they put around him. If they hadn't put the, the necessary length and athleticism around him, I would be a little bit worried about it. But he is, he is such a, an outlier from a, a mental processing standpoint on the defensive end. I think he'll be able to get these guys to at least figure out rotations at a – at a capable enough level to where they they're so disruptive that they're able to cause almost every NBA team trouble in a half court offensive sense. Um, so if, if Draymond is Draymond and that doesn't even necessarily mean 2016, but just give me 2019 Western conference finals, Draymond, where you're the most active guy on the floor. You're all over the place. You're tripled up a machine um, and you're the best defensive player in almost every game they step on the floor. on. So, yeah, I agree. And, and, and they're de- they have the necessary components to at least have a closing five that can defend. That would totally. be the, the thing to look at as like an optimistic view. So here's where I could see it going off the rails. The, you know, 
Uh, it, it actually, it's pretty simple. We talked about earlier with injuries. Injuries could be the first thing. But the other thing is I, I'm a big believer in Steph Curry and LeBron James's uh, offensive impact without scoring. It's something you and I have talked about at length uh, in these in these forums. And one of the biggest reasons why it works is the rosters historically have been built around their strengths. So, for instance, you know, LeBron, when he was in Cleveland, when he would captain those amazing offenses that didn't necessarily have a ton of talent, they all could shoot the hell out of the ball. So it was built around this idea that LeBron would put pressure on the rim, which would inevitably uh, draw in defenders where he could kick out to threes and they'd shoot the lights out and then it would invert and he'd be scoring at the rim all day long. And then the, uh, for Steph Curry, that was simply based on the idea that he would attract attention away from the basket, which would leave your offense perpetually playing four on three, which would allow you to get all sorts of dunks and easy corner threes and easy shots based on the gravity of Steph Curry away from the basket. Now, what, I, what, I, what worries me about this team is something I'm going to talk about a lot today, especially when we get to talking about the Lakers and Clippers, and it's their collective IQ. So, for instance, Steph Curry is an extremely high IQ player. Draymond Green is an extremely high IQ player. But when you go down the rest of the roster, you're running into a lot of names of guys that aren't the same level of of basketball IQ as Andre Iguodala was or that Sean Livingston was or that Kevin Durant was or that Leandro Barbosa was or that Andrew Bogut was or that any of those extremely smart, savvy veterans that could make really, really quick and easy and simple and consistent reads in those four on threes to get easy shots. And so what worries me is that it's going to turn into Steph needing to shoot a lot because of the fact that his offense may not be able to capitalize on the attention that he's drawing because Andrew Wiggins, who has a ton of talent, has not shown himself. Now, I know you've been pointing out in some film that he's made some good reads in some of these preseason yeah. games, and that would be the optimistic way of looking at it. But looking back at his career, that has not been one of his strengths. Kelly Oubre, same thing, a super athletic player, great in transition. He's been really good at defending at the four, great small ball four all around. But the, the reality is, is Kelly Oubre is not viewed around the league as a high IQ, quick decision maker in closeout situations, which is something that he would need to do. So that would be what would worry me, especially as you get into a postseason series, is that teams might be able to take the ball out of Steph Curry's hand relatively easily and that the Warriors wouldn't be able to necessarily capitalize on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I hear you there. There's definitely concerns. Um, Like you pointed out, though, I am an optimist in terms of um, Wiggins' projection as a playmaker. Um, He's shown, and that's not just based on something limited. That's based on his last year in Minnesota, too, where he was doing a lot more ball handling um, and, and just doing a lot more decision-making overall. And he was actually making some good reads. He's never going to be, you know, he's never going to be Andre Iguodala. Like I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, but he certainly made improvements. And I would assume that that just continues to get better um, in the warrior system. Cause if, if Kerr has shown anything, he doesn't develop shooters. He actually developed better playmakers, which is yeah. just a bizarre. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Cause the guy's one of the greatest shooters ever. Um, but I would be optimistic um, from that standpoint with Wiggins and I think what's important to note is the veterans they've added, Wanamaker and Baysmore specifically, those guys are actually pretty good passers. Um, so you, if Kerr mixes and matches lineups the right way, you don't have to have a ton of time where Wiggins and Uber are actually sharing the floor together, right? You can always have kind of – you almost stagger those two guys. They're playing 25 to 30 minutes a night, and you're keeping more veteran presence on the floor, guys who are higher IQ, better decision makers. Um, and I think Marquise Chris is actually really good in that area. He's a really good short roll passer. Um, he mm-hmm. understands the dribble handoff game really well, um, and he showed that all of last year. 
Um, and then um, I feel the same way about Eric Pascal, actually. Um, he's actually a pretty good passer as well. Um, and so, well, I do understand the concerns for sure. Like they're, those are totally valid concerns. I'm a little bit more optimistic in that area than I think that most people are. And that's because I've watched way too much Warriors film over the past 12 months. <laughs> I had nothing else to do. Um, yeah, so for, if anybody's questioning my commitment to being a Warriors fan, I was scouting draft prospects for free. So let's relax with that. I, I, I <laughs> days and hours studying the 12th pick in the NBA draft. Okay, so let, let's relax with me not being a Warriors fan. I'm not putting all that time in for my health. Yeah, I love, un- because I love the Warriors. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think I think I mean to put a bow on it. Like the uh, I, I I almost every time I keep coming back to the Warriors this year, I I, I come back to almost like a coin flip type of outcome. In the scenario where Steph Curry's healthy, I think that they're going to be a three or four seed. And I think that they are going to be a team that is going to beat all of the teams that are not from L.A. and uh, be an absolute upset threat to the L.A. teams based on injury luck. Uh, even And maybe even more than an upset threat against the Clippers for reasons we'll talk about here in a minute. But I, just by judging, you know, when I was building the the uh, the itinerary for this podcast, it's it's crazy to look at the level of talent in the Western Conference. We, we are not even going to talk about Oklahoma City, Memphis, San Antonio, and Minnesota today. And Minnesota has Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell and the number one overall pick. San Antonio has, uh, you know, LaMarcus Aldridge and, De- and DeMar DeRozan, two players who have made the playoffs several times in San Antonio. And uh, Memphis had, did make, in, make it into the play-in round last year and was the eight seed before the bubble and has one of the more talented guards in the league. The point being that there's so much talent in the Western Conference that the, the, the reality is, is if Steph goes down, it's going to be extremely difficult for them to win any game. Yeah. And that's if what happens. more than five or ten games. If he misses yeah. more than five or ten games, it's over, especially with the condensed season. It's only 72 to 82. That actually is going to be a big difference, especially with COVID. And, and that's, the, I mean, that's the whole wrench in all of this anyway. If a guy gets COVID and he's out for two or three weeks, kiss your season goodbye. If, if mm-hmm. it's one of your best players, that's, I mean, that's over, especially in the West. Because you could go over in that time. And, wow. and, and it's, it's true. And, like, you know, and the reality is what the, the example I bring up all the time is that the 2019 Lakers had a winning record when LeBron James played and they missed the playoffs by a mile. And I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but they basically just about went winless when he didn't play. Yeah, so, they, were, they were three games over when he did play, I want to say. At least it was one game, game over. Game. I think it went yeah. 27 and 26 or something like that when they, when he did play. And then I can't remember the exact numbers, but they were they were atrocious when he didn't play. Yeah. The point being is that when you're in the Western Conference, when you're playing that level of talent night in and night out, and you were reliant on one player to, to generate the variety or the, the majority of your offense, chances are you're going to drop a lot of games when someone gets hurt. So yeah. that would be, the, that would be the, 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 the coin flip there for me. And honestly, like, as a basketball fan, I'm rooting for Steph to stay healthy because I thought 2018 LeBron was one of the more fun seasons of my time rooting for him because he had to be great every night for them to win. Yep. And it was fun to watch. And I look forward to, to Steph having some of those moments this year. Same here, man. I'm rooting for it. I, I know people think that I'm not, but I, that, I want nothing more than to have a throwback Steph Curry season. So let's No, I was on your side the whole time. Like, even though I disagreed with some of the elements of your point, I was on your side the whole time because genuinely I've been there. And like, I can't tell you how many times I have people uh, uh, getting in my mentions with something crazy over, over something completely out of context or not paying attention to what I was trying to do, which was just try to be fair, you know? And, and, and it's, it's one of the frustrating elements of, of that platform. 
But anyway, so we're going to move on to the Lakers, and I'm going to start with this one because I I am going to right now as part of the uh, uh, the season preview say that I predict the Lakers to win the Western Conference and for the Lakers to win the NBA championship. And the reason why is really simple. So first of all, all of the reasons that they won last year are still in play this year. They have LeBron and AD, two of the top, in my opinion, four players in the league. I think LeBron's number one and Anthony Davis is number four. And they are alphas that on any, at any given moment in a playoff series can go toe-to-toe with any player in the league and can come out on top or at least play them to a draw. Two, they defend the hell out of the basketball. As I said last year, they, I thought they were the best defense in the league. There were a couple of Eastern Conference teams that defended better statistically, but the level of offensive talent in the Western Conference doesn't even come close to resembling what's in the Eastern Conference. And so getting a stop in the Western Conference, to me, is a little bit more impressive. So I thought the Laker defense all year long was the best defense in the league, and I believe they showed that in those late-round playoff series against Denver and against Miami uh, in just absolutely shutting down those offenses for stretches. And then last but not least, they had a really simple team construct where even though their role players were less than perfect than what you would hope for in your, you know, three through 15 on a roster, they were players that had really, really small roles, roles that they were able to knock out of the park. And as a result of those three things, I believe they won. And the reason why I'm even more optimistic about this team than I was about last year's team has to do with the fact that they, they, they kept those three core tenets of their championship identity and they fixed two key flaws that they had. Flaws that never actually amounted to anything in terms of their uh, uh, you know, ability to be knocked out of the playoffs, but flaws that were still there nonetheless. And that was IQ at the center position, something that I thought was a huge problem. JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard brought athleticism to the defensive end of the floor. Um, Dwight Howard brought IQ to the defensive end of the floor, but both of them were really, really bad on the offensive end. They frequently didn't know where to stand. They frequently messed with the Lakers spacing. Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee almost entirely took Anthony Davis's post-up game away in the sense that he almost always had to fade away. Now he made a lot of those, but he was forced into a lot of shots that weren't your traditional Anthony Davis power post-up game because of the fact that there was a guy sitting in the dunker spot and he never really had an opportunity to move around. I think Mark Gasol completely fixes that adds this huge high IQ element to the center position on the offensive end. He'll bring enough on the defensive end to, you know, he'll, he's already better than JaVale, who was a low IQ defender. He may not quite be what Dwight was, but he'll be some percentage of that. I, I really do think that Marcus Saul is a vast improvement at the center position. And then secondly, they had inconsistency in backup ball handling. So Rajon Rondo, when it looked good, it was awesome. And, and they were, they looked unbeatable. But he was bad more than he was good. Even in the playoffs where he had this weird impression as a guy who had proved everybody wrong, you know, playoff Rondo had come back. I thought he had a lot of horrible basketball games in that playoff run. And I thought there were games that the Lakers lost largely because of inconsistency from from Rajon Rondo in that playoff run. And I believe that adding the sixth man, uh, 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 one of the sixth man of the year candidates, a guy who is known for being a consistent bench producer out of the guard position in Dennis Schroeder is a massive, massive upgrade over the Rajon Rondo experience, especially on the defensive end. Rondo, when he was dialed in, was a decent defender, but he was so aloof half the time because he overthinks the game on the defensive end. He's always jumping out of position and trying to get steals that put their entire defense in a compromised position. And having Schroeder taking over all of Rondo's minutes and then some, I think, fills another hole 
in another weakness that that Laker team had. So it's kind of a hybrid between what they were last year and, and they repaired some of the potential flaws that they had last year. And it makes me all the more optimistic that they're going to be really, really difficult to beat this year. So just kind of at the start here, I, I basically agree with you that they're probably going to win the West and then they're probably the title favorites still. Um, that being said, I do have reservations about some of the moves they've made. Um, I thought Schroeder was a good addition, um, but to push back on your point a little bit, ha- has he really been seen as a consistent bench guy before the last 12 to 24 months? Um, the reputation he had was more of, oh, he's pretty hit or miss. You know, you, you're not always sure what you're going to get get from him from an effort standpoint. Um, you're not always sure if he's going to be mentally focused. And now he had a really good year in Oklahoma City. That's not to take anything away from him. Um, but I know there was those concerns early in his career. Maybe that's just the case of a young player needing to figure out the NBA, needing to figure out what he has to do to produce consistently. And maybe he's ironed out, out all those concerns because um, he's definitely a better player than he was a couple years ago. Let's not you know twist that at all. But my concern would be with him and Trez are definitely going to boost those bench units, especially during the regular season. I thought those are huge regular season additions for them, especially with LeBron and AD coming off, carrying heavy loads into the finals and, and only getting, what was it, 70 days, basically, of rest between the end of the finals. and 72, the I think, yeah. yeah it's, it's something, it's, I mean, it's the shortest span in, I think, league history. I don't see how there was ever a shorter offseason. Um, so I think between Trez and Schroeder, those are really good regular season moves, and I think it'll absolutely help them as a regular season team. It'll help LeBron probably not have to do much. Same with Anthony Davis. Um, and they'll go into the playoffs feeling fresher. But what I would worry about is maybe some diminishing returns in terms of how possessions look on the offensive end, right? If you're taking possessions away from LeBron or Anthony Davis, your offense is probably going to be worse for it. Um, so the things that you pointed out were definitely flaws. I could just, I see a path for it to go wrong as well. And that, I mean, that's the case for any team, but I think I'm a little bit less optimistic on their playoff ceiling um, than um, I think most are at this point. Um, I think Gasol is definitely a good addition. Obviously, I wanted Gasol on the Warriors really badly, and I think he might have ended up there if Clay doesn't go down. How incredible was that preseason game? Oh my god, <laughs> he's such he's such an insane passer. Um, he's he's just gonna he's gonna get the Lakers ten easy buckets or five easy buckets that they just weren't getting last year. You know, um, so yeah, he, he's an incredible player, um, and he's obviously a really good addition. Uh, but in, in terms of defense, I don't know if he's as good as Dwight was in those situational moments where. I mean, Dwight really frustrated Jokic for like a good portion of that Denver series. And nobody else was really able to do that against Jokic. Gobert a little bit, but not at the level that Dwight did. Um, and, and Dwight got a little bit too crazy with it for a while. He was like instigating too much and not playing real basketball at a certain point. But point being, the Lakers definitely made some improvements to the roster in terms of if we're just looking player A for player B, you know, sure is obviously a better player than Rondo. Um, Trez is probably a better scoring big than anybody they had on the roster last year, not named Anthony Davis. And Gasol is certainly a better all-around player than Dwight or Javel at this point. So they did add better players to the roster. I could just see, especially with a short offseason, not a long training camp, um, role delineation doesn't happen properly, and it kind of goes sideways. Um, just in terms of the playoffs, I think regular season will be totally fine. Because I, I think, like I said, Trez and Schroeder were necessary moves for the regular season. They needed guys who could take the load away from LeBron and AD, especially after this short offseason. Um, but yeah, playoffs, I, I, like I said, I still think they're probably the best team in the league, uh, but I have more reservations than most do. Yeah. So I, I agree with you about Schroeder. Um, his, the concerns about him coming into the season 
were that the jump shooting performance in Oklahoma City was an outlier performance yeah. because he was a poor jump shooter in the seasons leading up to that. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, who knows? You know, we've seen examples of guys learn how to shoot later in their career, like Tony Parker. And then we've seen examples of guys who had outlier shooting performances and then never did it again, like Kyle Kuzma. So the reality is, is that certainly, you know, uh, that's a potential outcome there. What I would push back on that is to say that, you know, Rajon Rondo was one of the most miserably inconsistent jump shooting backup guards that I've totally. ever had on a team that I've for in my life. Yeah. So that, that would be part of that there. I am, I, where I've parted from a lot of Laker fans is I thought the Trez move was a mistake. For starters, um, it hard capped the team. And as a result of that, you know, they may not have, from what I understand, and th- this is so complicated because I've seen mixed things. I've seen some Laker fans say that they absolutely can add a 15th player. And then I've seen Bobby Marks, who's a cap expert, say that they've already added their 14th player and they can't add another player. Yeah. Uh, the, the hard cap's bizarre. We dealt with it last year with Golden State. It, it's weird, but. Um, if they actually are hard capped, then they could only they actually can't add any money over that number. Not uh, at all. Yeah, it's, that's how the hard cap works. It's you a literal hard, hard cap. cap. Yeah. So. so they might have to literally sign, you know, uh, rookie players who don't, you know, fall under the veteran veteran minimum scale, allowing them to stay under the cap, which takes them at, like if you wanted to sign Pau Gasol as a, like a leadership role, you can't do that now. If Trevor Ariza becomes available, you can't do that now. Yeah. Some killer buyout guy comes up later in the season. You can't go after him now. Those are those are problems with the hard cap that I thought weren't necessarily worth the Montrez Harrell experience. I said from the very beginning that I thought the only player that was worth the hard cap was Serge Ibaka because I thought Serge Ibaka would have been an amazing, uh, uh, you know, a center to put alongside Marcus All in, in that front court. Uh, that said, it is what it is. He's in the picture. I agree 100 percent with you. He's absolutely a net positive during the regular season. Whether or not he can be, you know, of any sort of positive impact in the in the postseason is going to 100 percent come down to what he can do on the defensive end. And the reality is, is that what you hope for is we that, saw that in the playoffs last year, it was not pretty. It was not, it was, it was, it was worse than not pretty. He, he was objectively yeah. <laughs> hurting his team. And yep. so the question becomes, does Frank Vogel, who, you know, by all accounts is an incredible defensive scout, uh, uh, you know, his, his, his allegedly his scouting reports would have, uh, uh Laker players give him a round of applause after as weird as that. that sounds. I, uh, yeah, I heard that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a little bit of LeBron propaganda, but we're just oh, talking yeah. about that side. <laughs> yeah. LeBron, LeBron approves of the coach. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and then uh, and then you had um, and then you have LeBron and Anthony Davis, who Anthony Davis is arguably the best defensive player in the league, and LeBron, who's a really really high IQ defensive player, who at when he's really focused on that end can still be a first team All Defense level player. So the reality is, is you hope that those guys can bring the most out of him. But the pushback there would be. Paul George and Kawhi Leonard were two first-team all-defense level players, and Doc Rivers is famous for being a defensive coach. So the reality is if they couldn't get it out of him, I don't see how they expect you know Paul George and Kawhi to get it out of him. But the reality is, and what I said from the beginning is, they don't need Montrez Harrell. Yeah. Uh, which so they don't need Montrez Harrell to win. They, he doesn't like he doesn't even necessarily make sense in their closing lineup. I think their closing lineups are going to be eighty at the five or Marcus All at the five with eighty at the four. And the the reality is, is, and they might even they might even play a little bit of Markeith Morris at the five, like they did in the finals. So the the reality is, is Markeith or Montrez is is a luxury, not a necessity. 
And if it, if it works out great, if it doesn't, who cares? But the, the point is, is why did you hard cap the team then for somebody that wasn't a, that wasn't a necessity? That would be where I'd push yeah. back on that move. And now, so I, I, I did look ahead. it up. They are hard capped um, at 138 mil. I believe it is just a little, little over 138 mil. They have 136 million right now on the roster with Quinn Cook's contract. So it looks like they could maybe add somebody um, like at, if somebody gets bought out late, you know, the contract's shorter. It, it doesn't cost as much. And you could probably do it at the buyout deadline. I'm guessing that's how they tried to structure this. Um, but yeah, I don't think they'll be at, able to add any more veterans this preseason. So, and like, and so let's say, that, so yeah, and for the record, the way, the way the veteran minimum works, as far as I understand it, is it's a contract for like 2.6 million and some change, yeah, yeah. but it only hits your cap for 1.6 million and some change. And the league actually pays the remaining 1 million of the deal. It's like a, yeah. a special provision in the, in the CBA. But like I said, what was weird about that was I saw a tweet from Bobby Marks a while back that said that they didn't have room for a 15th. So, I, but regardless, let's say that, let's say they can add one, then they can only add one. So, yeah. if you know if the Lakers decide to cut Quinn Cook, if they decide to cut whoever it is that they want to cut at some point down the line in the season, if it's a guaranteed contract, like you just can't. And Quinn Cook's yeah, is non guaranteed Yeah, I think I'm still I on the hooks, and you're still trapped. Yeah. So, like my question was from the beginning was like. You know, unless you thought this guy was going to be a huge, like Serge Ibaka unquestionably could have played crunch time in the finals for the Lakers as a five. That, that to me would have been worth the risk of hard capping the team. I didn't agree with the idea of adding a player that had, you know, as little impact on the ceiling of that team as Montre- uh, Montrez did to hard cap the team. That was my one big pushback there. Um, but yeah, so. Uh, yeah, like I, I, I think they're going to win. That's my pick, but I 100% agree with you. Like there's absolutely scenarios where it can go south, most of which center around injuries, which are certainly like if there, knock on wood, if there was a scenario where an injury could happen to a player like LeBron and AD, it'd be a scenario like this on a shortened off season with funky circumstances in accelerated season. So I just think they need to be very careful with their load managing and try to avoid that as much as possible. But the reality is, is as you and I both know, as anybody who's played has ever known, like the reality is, is injuries aren't really associated with that. They're kind of fluky and they just happen. And there's not really anything you can do about it. Um, all right. So the Clippers, I am, I am in the weird position of being lower on the Clippers than most people while simultaneously thinking they're the biggest threat to knock out the Lakers. Um, the reality is, is their biggest flaw coming out of last season, which was low collective basketball IQ, in my opinion. Kawhi Leonard, who's an extremely gifted player, player, he's basically Michael Jordan without the high-end basketball IQ. And I think that's the big difference between the two of them. And then Paul George, who has received plenty of slander in the last week, so you don't need to hear anything from me. But the reality is, is they were missing, they were missing that. They're missing that it factor in terms of that that confident offensive decision maker that can consistently make good decision, decisions at the end of these games. And then they added Serge Ibaka, who I actually think was a legitimate improvement to the team, but, but, but it doesn't fix their fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. So what concerns me with them is regardless of how much talent they have, they have the exact same flaw they had last year, and what did they lose to? An extremely smart basketball team with a really smart coach and a top 10 player who's known for being one of the smarter players in the league. So that would be where I could see them going off the rails. But the, 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 their ceiling to me is just the idea that they're built to beat the Lakers. Tons of switching wings, the ability to force LeBron and AD to play a ton of ISO, and then they are built to attack the soft spot in the Lakers defense, which is the mid-range area, because the Lakers like to chase everybody off the three-point line and force them to drive into their size. Yep. yep. 
So, I mean, I, I'm with you. I, I, I was lower on the Clippers dating back to last, you know, February, March before kind of COVID shut down. I just didn't, I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a lot of the stuff that you're re- referencing kind of collective low basketball IQ. Um, and I, I didn't, I mean, the surge move was a good move for sure, but I didn't understand keeping Lou Williams on the roster. And I don't understand not, like trying to get somebody like Ricky Rubio or, I mean, Kyle Lowry would have been a little bit trickier because his contract's much bigger, but I, I don't know how they didn't make a move for a legit point guard. Like, are you going to run it back with Reggie Jackson and Lou Williams? Good luck. Like those guys aren't going to make good decisions at the end of playoff games. We've Lou Williams is like one of the historically worst playoff players in NBA history. And if we're looking at regular season performance relative to playoff performance, he, he falls off a cliff every single year. So expecting him to change that at age 34 or 35 or whatever he is now, that's not going to happen. Um, so like you said, I, I think they definitely could still beat the Lakers just because um, they they have a ton of guys who are switchable who could give LeBron and AD problems, especially if, let's say, LeBron slows down two to three more percent. Um, Kawhi and PG can make his life that much tougher. Um, but, yeah, it, it looks like they really just built their team with how can we beat the Lakers, right? And maybe that's end up what matters, but you've got to get to that matchup first. You have to be able to get to the Lakers to actually beat the Lakers. But, I, I mean, I could see them becoming an even better defense this year if they figure out the rotations correctly. Um, because instead of playing Montrezl Harrell 25 to 30 minutes, you're playing Serge Ibaka 20 to 25 to 30 minutes. Um, and you could really just bank on becoming the best defensive team in the league and beating the Lakers like that. But I just, I don't see it, man. I don't see it. Like you said, I have all the same concerns. We align too much on this one. I have no pushback to anything you said. It felt like, it felt like they lost the postseason. And I know it seems like such a cliche yeah, thing totally. to say. Or, or I shouldn't say the postseason, the offseason. I apologize. Yeah. But it felt like they lost the offseason. Like, it felt like they took a patient approach looking for some sort of big move that would, that would flip the scales and then all of a sudden, there was there wasn't really anything, and and they got Ibaka, which seems to be on the strength of the relationship between him and Kawhi Leonard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is, is that like, you know, if I was a Clipper fan, I'd be sitting there like, "What are you guys doing? <laughs> like, yeah. like this, these guys are better than us, and they keep getting better." And, and we basically swapped a power forward for a better version of the same exact position. And that wasn't really our problem. Like what in the world, what, what in the world's going on here? And, and so that, that would be my thing. If I, if I was a Clipper fan, I'd just be extremely frustrated that they didn't do enough. But then again, at the same time, like, you know, Ricky Rubio is, that makes sense. That's like a solid, and for the record, they could still go after someone like that. Okay. You know, Minnesota, if they fall out of the playoff picture, they'll be, they'll be sellers as we get into the, into the trade season. But and it's I like, I'm pretty sure Rubio is expiring or he has two years left on his deal. So he's, a, he's definitely a movable contract and he's a good player. Yeah. He's a solid player. And he'd be the, the perfect example of a guy that if you put him in that lineup to basically run the offense for Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, and he can hold his own defensively, that's the kind of guy that would have made a legitimate improvement to that roster. Now, it still would have ended up coming down to Kawhi and Paul George versus LeBron and AD. I think that kind of stuff usually does. But that would have taken away their fatal flaw, which is that low IQ, uh, you know, that, that lack of decision-making with the star and filling in the hole that their stars had. And, and so I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like, why in the world isn't Rubio in, in with the Clippers right now? Why wasn't That's that pursued? Like what, no. like, like, and is it, is it as simple as they gave away all their draft picks for Marcus Morris and for Paul George? Like, is it, is it that simple? I don't know. And that was the other thing, the Marcus Morris contract, like, and this is something we talked about with, with the Lakers a minute ago, 
But as you said, any possession that doesn't run through LeBron and Anthony Davis is a wasted possession unless they are, you know, actively fatigued and they're trying to save their legs, which is something that I think is, you know, important. Like you can't just run it through them, but you do need to have the lion's share of your offense run through your best players or you can have problems. And what bothered me about Marcus Morris is it felt like every time he touched the damn ball, he wanted to go do his damn his, do his own thing. And he then you've got Paul George. He thinks he actually is better than Paul George. Paul. So you can see it. You can see it on his face. And that's not just us making like jokes. Like that's an I that is I would bet my life that he thinks that. And and like it was, reported. it was basically reported that he said that about Paul George, like that he thought he was a better player. Yeah, exactly. And 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 the reality is, is like he he is a player who is too good for the role they're asking him to fill, which is basically a three and D guy. And too often he breaks off from the offense and too often he does his own thing. If you raise the collective IQ of your team with someone like Rubio, you get, you get into a position where that kind of stuff just happens less and players just like, it's kind of like a rising tide that floats all boats kind of concept. But when I look at that off season and I see you overpay Marcus Morris, the only net positive move is the bringing in of Serge Ibaka. You completely fail to fix the key flaw in the roster. It just, I, I really don't understand what they're doing, especially from a, like we are a long way away from last off season where the Lakers were considered a dumpster fire mm-hmm. and the Clippers were considered one of the smarter franchises in the league. Like the, the, it was so bad that like, as, as reporters like Woj and Shams were properly, explaining the situation laker fans were like losing their mind thinking they're biased but it's like they looked like a tighter run ship at the time and the lakers the lakers had their president of basketball operations going on first take burning down the gm and for the world to see and now we're one and a half years later and the lakers are just completely running circles around this franchise i've never seen anything like it in my time following Polinka's done an outstanding job man like I, i have nothing bad to say about Polinka. he's every move and whether some of it was luck or not i mean a lot of this stuff with GMing is mm-hmm. every move he's made has seemed has bettered the franchise you know every roster move so yeah it, it really has been a ridiculous about face and now the, the stuff about Jerry West like um that guy paying him like 2.5 million just to ensure that oh, I saw that yeah like like it's just it, it doesn't even seem real at this point like half the stuff that's coming out is like this sounds like something out of a movie I know. <laughs> I, I, I can't. I, it, it has been one of the most fascinating things I've seen in my life. Like from rioting outside of Staples Center because they because yeah. they, they're sick and tired of the Laker front office to to this to just yeah. like you said a complete about face. It's really strange. But I mean, again, matchups. You know, styles make fights. Matchups win playoff series. The Clippers have some legitimate matchup advantages over the Lakers, and if they can make a solid deadline move, if they can stay healthy they absolutely have a, a, a puncher's yeah. chance. Of but I would say they need to make that deadline move. They need to bring in a point guard. And maybe that guy ends up being Kyle Lowry at the deadline. I don't know what that trade Kyle Lowry like. would be and, a huge addition. And I don't know. I mean, the only way to make the numbers work would be like Marcus Morris plus Pat Bev. But Marcus Morris just signed for four years, 64 million. Toronto's not taking on that contract. Yeah. They'd have to give up four first round picks. And they don't have those anymore. They already <laughs> traded them away. So yeah. and people would just keep... You know, and I didn't like letting Jerry West go as a Warriors fan, but what has he, what have him and Lawrence Frank done in the past 18 months that's inspired any confidence? You know, ever since they signed Kawhi and Paul George, it's kind of been all downhill from there. That whole thing was like up to that point, though, it was genius. Like, I'm stealing Zubac from the Lakers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, like the the whole trade, um, 
um, with Houston when they pulled in all of those role players that became key yeah. role players like Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams yeah. and, and Montrez Harrell, who all became key components of that of that playoff team last year. Danilo Gallinari was a great fit. They did such an amazing job over the previous years. It's honestly so deeply confusing for me to see that happen. And, and, and like for your key move to be bringing back Marcus Morris, who – I don't know how anybody was watching that team and thought that he was bringing a positive impact aside from hitting shots. He hit shots, like make no mistake, but like, I'm a big believer in like, it's, it's all about like, that'd be like winning the battle to lose the war in my opinion, to have him being overly aggressive. All right. So we have hit all of the key important big teams that I wanted to hit so far with the West. So what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to, like I said, we're going to ignore OKC, Memphis, San Antonio, Minnesota altogether. I'm going to quickly rapid fire, through the remaining Western Conference teams, I'm going to quick go over their offseason moves. And uh, I want you just to quick tell me your outlook on those teams. We're not going to touch on them too long, but we'll just uh, briefly touch on them. So Denver, so they lost Torrey Craig and uh, uh, Jeremy Grant. So they lost both of their wing defenders that they put on LeBron in last year's uh, playoff series. And they signed a guy who I actually, or they drafted a guy I actually really liked out of Arizona named Zeke Naji. I thought there's a really, really classic like hustle for uh, who could shoot the ball a little bit, and he's got a super. Yeah, I know a lot of the draft picks were were pretty high on his projection as like you know a three and D guy, hopefully. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, he could shoot. He stretch four, can defend really well, and he's got a really tough mentality. He's really fun to watch uh, here in Tucson. Uh, and then you know the prospect of of Michael Porter Jr. potentially improving, but that's basically your Denver offseason. They did not get discernibly better, in my opinion. So that would be my concern there. The question would be: Is Jamal Murray? from the bubble going to be the real Jamal Murray, Jamal Murray moving forward. I mean, if he's like, if he's just like 80 or 90% of that guy, that's an amazing player. That's probably a top 20 player. I mean, he doesn't have to be, if he's the guy that was in the bubble, I keep saying this, he's going to be the greatest player of all time. <laughs> he was scoring 30 points a game and shooting 50, 50, 90. Like that's literally the greatest player ever. If he continues to do that. Um, but if, I mean, if he could be 80% of that guy where he's, you know, 23, 24 a game, uh, mid to high forties from the field, high thirties from three. And, and he's always shot free throws historically. Well, like 90%. Um, if he's that guy, then yeah, they're a problem. But uh, you kind of pointed out the, the guys they lost on the wing. Who's going to guard LeBron or Kawhi or Paul? Any of those guys in a playoff series? I, I thought Jeremy Grant was a was actually a difference maker for them against the Clippers. You know, just his length and athleticism was able to bother the Clippers' wing players, and they don't have that anymore. So yeah, I don't know. I, like MPJ is obviously more talented than Jeremy Grant or Torrey Craig, but at that point, you're just betting on being incredible offensively, which they might be. They might be unbelievable on offense. But can they stop anybody? This, if you're not a top, if you're not a top ten defense, you can't win a title. It does not happen. And it I doesn't think, happen unless you have Steph Curry, LeBron James, Clay Thompson, or Draymond Green. That's the only team that can do it. Or Shaq exactly. O'Neal at the height of his power. So mm-hmm. those are the two teams that I think when the Warriors won in 2018, they had fallen below a top ten defense. But the person like there, it was barely. was still there. Like yeah, it was 11th, and it's like okay, but they still they were fatigued. They were in their fourth straight finals. It had mm-hmm. much more to do with that than actually not being good defensively anymore. Um, so, yeah, I just don't – I mean, maybe they're neutral from last season. They're, they probably still win a ton of regular season games. Um, they might be a second-round team. But, like, if – like we talked about earlier, if everything goes right for the Warriors, I'm picking the Warriors over the Nuggets in a series. And that's you, if everything goes right. Mm-hmm. Like, so they are probably third or fourth in the West right now in terms of teams that I would expect to go to the finals. I'd have the Lakers clearly above them, um, and I'd probably have the Clippers and um, Warriors above them at this point. Um and then we'll see how things go with Dallas or Phoenix, but I'd say Nuggets probably comfortably fourth or fifth in the West right now. 
Yeah, so we're going to get to Dallas in a second, but I would have them fourth, and then I'd have Dallas behind okay. them. I would say that Denver is one of my favorite candidates for an outlier James Harden trade based on the idea that you can't beat the Lakers, you can't beat the Warriors, or maybe they think they can, but they're, they're, they're not a good enough team to win the title right now. They have no, like, no readily apparent uh, prospects to potentially get good enough to do so. Mm-hmm. And, you, and Michael Porter Jr. would have to get so incredibly better than he is right now for that to end up raising their ceiling. And this is a guy who literally has dropped foot because he has massive back problems. So yeah. my question would be, like, are you, com- are you so comfortable with your culture and your, and your trajectory that you stick with this group? Or do you throw, uh, you know, MPJ and, and Jamal Murray in some picks at Houston, bring in James Harden and be like, now nah, I got two of the best 10 players in the league. And now, now I can sit there and be like, okay, I have two of the top 10 players in the league and the Clippers don't. So I can go yeah. talk to the Clippers. But then are, are the surrounding guys even good enough at that point? Because around Jokic and Harden, what would you need? You need guys who can defend. For sure, right. but you're not hard caps, so you could try to bring in veteran yeah. guys. They become, they have lots of minutes available. They become a destination because most, as I've learned, as someone who's rooted for guys to join my favorite teams over the years, in my experience, veteran minimum guys almost always go to where they're going to get more minutes because they like to play basketball. Yeah, yeah so totally. I, I, I think I'm a big believer in get your get your stars and you'll figure it out. Like I mean, last year the. Last year, everybody roasted everybody the Lakers signed. Literally. Like, there wasn't a guy they signed that everyone was like, oh, that was a good signing. Like, they didn't like Rondo. They didn't like KCP. They didn't like Avery Bradley. They didn't like Dwight Howard. They didn't like JaVale McGee. And all of them ended up working out because of the strength of the two best players and the way that it made everything else work. So they're one of my outlier threats. So moving on to Houston. Uh, John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins. What are we we saying about Harden at this point? First of all, I'm going to take just a a quick little victory lap. Go ahead. Just a quick one. I think people can see how I'm now validated in not having Harden in my top 10. It has nothing to do with his talent. It has nothing to do with his talent because he's one of the most talented guys in the league still. But you are retooling your roster every 12 to 18 months if he is your best player. And it's because he's unhappy. So I don't have anything else to add. But is he one of the most talented guys in in the league? Yes. Would I want to build my franchise around him? No, I'm sorry, I wouldn't. I don't want to deal with the headaches. I would rather, I'd rather have Dame because I know where Dame's, I know where Dame's heart's always going to be. If I'm doing the right things, I'm putting the right guys around Dame, he's going to rally the truth and he's going to be one of the best leaders in the league. And yeah, the, the difference in performance is small enough to where it's not super, super significant. So, yeah, and I, I agree. And I think it's time for us to look back at the 2018 Rockets and acknowledge the impact of Chris Paul and acknowledge the impact of uh, Jeff Bedzelik or whatever his name is, the guy who, yeah. who, who uh, you know, came up with that defense that gave the Warriors so many problems and, yeah. and understand that there, there's, there's a deeper story to what happened there, mm-hmm. uh, and especially when you start to look at how horrible James Harden played in that series. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the reality is, is uh, let's operate for the purposes of this as we get to these other teams, and we're, uh, especially when we do Friday, when we do the Eastern Conference pod, because I think they're the more likely destination for James Harden. Yeah, definitely. Um, but as we get through these teams, we'll talk about where he might go. But for the purposes of right now, let's operate under the premise that James Harden is staying in Houston with okay. John Wall. John Wall, I like him as a natural fit better than Russell Westbrook just because of the fact okay. that he's a little bit a little bit more high IQ and a little bit more uh, willing yeah, to play good. He looked pretty good in that first preseason oh, game. It was bad. I was yeah. shocked. And so, and I feel like he'll do a better job of the balance back and forth, but with him and James Harden, 
Uh, DeMarcus Cousins can shoot threes, which is an interesting element to them being able to play a center, but continue their their space and attack offense. Mm-hmm. And Christian Wood, I, I'm a big believer in not bullshitting you guys. I haven't seen enough of him to make an opinion. So that's mm-hmm. just where I would say on that. But I haven't heard enough good about him to think he could be that much of a ceiling raiser. So I view them as more or less the same type of threat that they were last year. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they could get hot maybe for a playoff series and upset somebody, but I'm with you. And I think Wall is definitely a better fit. He's a little bit more fluid of a playmaker than Russ is. Uh, it just comes more natural to him. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a good fit next to next to Harden. He's prob- At this point, he's probably a better shooter, too, than, mm-hmm. than Russ is, which is not saying much, but I, anybody's a better shooter than Russ. And I think uh, Wall will commit maybe a little bit more to playing off ball, even though he didn't really show that in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- we'll see. We'll see. Um I'm right there with you. I, they're a bottom tier, probably Western Conference playoff team. If Harden stays, they're probably in the six to eight range. And I could even see them falling out if some of these young teams pop. Um, if Memphis randomly pops, we're not going to talk about them. But if they, you know, if they look really good this year, then you know teams are going to start to fall out. So yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't, I don't see much of a ceiling for them. It's second round at best. We've seen Harden slip in a random regular season and go 41 and 41 and get in as an eight seed. And it's something that because because he's a bad attitude guy and because he's always on the verge of decommitting mentally from a team. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. So Utah, for more more or less, they're the same team with Derek Favors. Uh, I I view them as just as flawed as they were last year in the sense that they rely too much on Donovan Mitchell to create all their offense. They were hoping for Mike Conley to be a relief in that regard, but he's way too, too inconsistent because he is actually on that downslope that we talked about with these smaller guards. So yep. I view them as more or less a six or a seven seed in a non-threat. Yeah, I mean, they're a non-threat. I could see them maybe being a little bit better as a regular season team um, than some people expect maybe sneaking into a top four seed just from a continuity standpoint. Like there has been a little bit of turnover in the roster. Conley's obviously relatively new, um, Bogdanovich to a certain extent, but their core guys have been there, Gobert, Mitchell uh, favors is coming back. So they, I mean, they know what the deal is there. Uh, Ingles is still there. Um, I think they could be a good regular season team. Like they are a lot of the times, but I don't see it for the playoffs at all. You know um, it took, it took Donovan Mitchell having, and Jamal Murray had an amazing series too, but Mitchell had to have like his best series ever. And they still lost in seven to Denver, you know? So yeah, non-threat, like I said, they might have a little bit of a higher regular season ceiling, um, than some people expect just from a continuity standpoint, but I don't see it from a playoff standpoint. They're not, they don't, they should not scare any of the, the top tier teams. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like a big part of their projection moving forward, in my opinion, depends on Donovan Mitchell kind of getting a little bit more of a point guard mentality, feeling the flow of the game, understanding when to be aggressive and when to be passive, when to keep teammates involved, when to put his foot to the, you know, pedal to the metal. Better at drawing fouls. He, he doesn't, he yeah, does not draw a lot of fouls. If he, because he, sh- he ends up shooting a lot of these weird floaters in the middle of the lane where it's like, maybe just take another dribble. He's he's strong. He's athletic. Try mm-hmm. to, like, your per- field goal percentage might drop a percent or two because you're trying more crazy shots at the rim. But if you're drawing more fouls, that invariably guys who are high free throw rate guys help create great offense. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so I, I, those would be the two areas of growth I'd look for him at, at playmaking, which he has definitely improved on, and then drawing more fouls. So uh, Dallas, they lost Seth Curry, but they added James Johnson, a 3 and D wing that they didn't really have on the roster last year. Uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Josh Richardson. Dorian Finney-Smith, I think is his yep. name. Was the, yep. He was their 3 and D guy last year. Just yep. wasn't really, uh, it just wasn't really consistent enough and high IQ enough on the wing. Uh, James Johnson is just a much better version of him, in my opinion. 
Josh Richardson is Seth Curry, less less of a shooter, but a much better defensive player. Yeah, and he's a, he's a really better. good addition. I think he's a really yeah. good addition. And he makes more sense on this roster than he does in Philly because in yep. Philly he was being asked to, to generate a lot of their offense, which just never has been his strength. No. Um, and then they picked up that uh, super athletic forward from Orlando, uh, Wes Awundu. Yep. Um, but and then they they're returning Dwight Powell, who was gone with an Achilles injury, and Kristaps Porzingis, who was gone with a knee. Uh, I think he tore his meniscus. And I think I think Kristaps is at least out until like the new year, from what I've seen reported. Oh, really? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. That that's what I said. The last time I saw, he's out until at least the new year. Let me double check that real quick. Um, but what do you feel about them? Where do you think they're going to end I up? Think, in the I think it was a perfect off. I think it was a perfect off season for them in the sense that you know they didn't want to tie up their cap because they wanted to potentially wait for Giannis, which apparently is off the table. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, they were smart to try to wait for that because uh, Giannis has been on the record that he really liked Luca. Yeah. Uh, uh, they they had a weakness on the wing defensively last year, and I think it hurt them against the Clippers. I think they remedied that with James Johnson, Josh Richardson. And Dwight Powell, when he went down with his Achilles tear last year, took away a lot of their front court that front court athleticism, yeah. and it hurt them. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, it hurt them at the end of that season. Wes Awundu is not as good as Dwight Powell, but he's in a similar mold in the sense that he gives them more athletic height, uh, athletic uh, more athleticism in their front court to help run that you know pick and roll action with with Luca. But at the end of the day, this team is all about Luka Doncic. He's your prime MVP candidate because of the fact that he's a bona fide number one on his team. As good as Chris Stapps is, he's never going to be a guy that people look at as a guy who's taking away his MVP votes. Chris, Chris Stapps, by the way, uh, January 1st on-court activity return date. So they're not even bringing him back to do any on-court activity. He's barely day. doing anything. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe he's ready by late January, early February to start playing games. And that makes uh, – they, they have Willie Cauley-Stein who's probably going to be playing his minutes in the meantime. Uh, Bad but, player. Really but, bad player. Yeah, as you can I, speak. I, oh, my God. I, 30 games was enough. Get him <laughs> off my team. Get him off my team. Nice enough guy, it seems like, but not a good player. Yeah, and, and but like, and but the reality is, is like the prime Luca type MVP type of deal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when we're talking, when we're parsing out seeds with these teams, or we're talking about, you know, between the three seed and the 12 seed, a lot of this honestly is going to be separated by a handful of games. I wouldn't be surprised if the 12 seed was, you know, four and a half games back of the three seed. Like that's just the way it this, might be next this year. especially if let's say, you know, the, the COVID stuff is fairly spread out. Injuries are fairly spread out and everybody kind of misses the same amount of time. It could definitely end up like that. I can mm-hmm. see that happening very, very easily. Mm-hmm. And the last two seeds are play-ins this year, the seven and yeah. eight are the play-ins. So it makes it even more interesting. For sure. And, and so, but the bottom line is, is if Luke is going to be more or less the same guy that we saw in the first round of the playoffs, which I think we all thought he'd be a good playoff player, but he proved yeah. to us that he's not, uh, you know, the type of player who, who will, uh, you know, whose impact will lessen on that, that level. But with them adding wing defense, with them adding a little bit more playmaking with Josh Richardson and with them adding some front court, front court athleticism, they're absolutely in that like upset threat tier of the Western conference where, a team that has some flaws who comes into that series with them who might have had a better record uh, could just as easily lose to them. Totally. And, and my the, the one, last thing I'd say about the Mavericks is I'm interested to see what direction they kind of go offensively, especially when Porzingis gets back. Do they really just lean into Luka pick and roll? Because, they, I mean, they were super, super heavy Luka pick and roll last year. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought it was almost detrimental sometimes. And he's incredible. Um, but I, I was fairly vocal and critical about – um, them just like going to that too much too early in his career instead of trying to develop other parts of his game. Parts mm-hmm. that he's going to need, frankly, if his team's ever going to win championships. 
Yeah, um, or if you ever add a co-star. Like I, and I, I mentioned this briefly before, basing how you build your team and how you play offense off of LeBron James is one of the dumbest things you can do. You know, and, and LeBron doesn't lean into that stuff as much as he was in those late Cavs years because he had to. LeBron's usage and, is lower than people think it is. It is. It absolutely sure. is. But some of those late Cavs years, it was it was a lot of LeBron uh, yeah. just surrounded by shooters. And that's more of it. It's just, you know, surround your best player with shooters and let him do everything. That's mm-hmm. not, it's not a sustainable model because you don't have a top five player ever on your roster. Even mm-hmm. if Luca is on an incredible tra- trajectory, but top five ever? Like, I, I don't know, man. Like, that, <laughs> that's so ambitious. Um, so I'd be interested to see if, how many possessions Porzingis is getting, how many Josh Richardson's is getting. And Luca, look, Luca's got to be the end-all be-all at the end of the day. But I also don't want him running 80 pick-and-rolls because their offensive rating was still good without him last year. When he wasn't on the floor, there was obviously a drop-off, but it wasn't anything significant. It was only four or five points. They were still one of the top offenses in the league with him off the floor. They were beating teams by they were they were handling yeah. teams without it, which he was always my example of the foolishness that uh, that a, a high usage player is going to hurt your bench lineups, and it never made any sense to me. Yep, yep, exactly. So um, that'd be the only thing I'd be looking for with them this year to see what their offense looks like. Um, but I, I'm, I think I'm basically with you on mm-hmm. them being a potential upset there. Like if they're if they're just better than last year, maybe they beat the Clippers in a series. You know, mm-hmm. um, if Luca takes another step and if their role guys perform to where they can, I could easily see them beating the Clippers and really anybody besides the Lakers in mm-hmm. if it all goes right. Well, I mean, and, and he took the Clippers to six without Dwight Powell, without Kristaps Porzingis, and without the wing defenders he's going to have this year. Yep. Um, all right. So Portland, they added Enos Cantor, more or less to me, uh, just a bench player, considering the fact that Nurkic is going to play the five for the most part for them. Uh, Derek Jones Jr., who even though uh, even though Shams or I can't remember if it was Shams or Woj said he was an important role player on uh, NBA finalist, he's not a very good basketball player. Uh, Roko Roko played in the playoff minutes. Derek Jones Jr. barely played in the playoff. Minutes. Yeah, it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever read. <laughs> but uh, uh, Roko, uh, I actually really really like. I think he's a unique wing in the sense that you can actually play him at the center because he's such a gifted shot blocker. Yeah. And, you know, his shooting is somewhat inconsistent, but he makes more than enough of them to make you pay if you leave him wide open all game long. And then they added Harry Giles, who, uh, again, it's kind of similar to the MPJ thing where I haven't or not MPJ. It's kind of similar to the Christian Wood thing mm-hmm. where I haven't necessarily seen enough of enough of him to have a, a really strong take. But from what I understand, he's just your stereotypical like bully ball athletic four who it doesn't really bring a lot of skill to the table, but is extremely gifted around the basket as an athlete. He's and just a pretty good passer. He's a pretty good passer if you watch enough of him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's like a canny little like high post passer. Sees back cuts, can find shooters. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I mean, I I honestly and they added Rodney Hood too, right? Then they they brought. Well, he was Hood. already on the roster. He's just back from his Achilles there. Yeah. Yep. So I honestly thought they had one of the more overrated off seasons in recent memory. Especially mm-hmm. for, for the way, you know, relative to the way people are talking about them. Bobby Marks is saying, oh, they're going to be the third seed in the West. Yeah, I when I heard that, I was like, wait, what? Did they, was there a signing I missed in there somewhere? <laughs> I, just didn't, like, I just don't see that, man. Like, Rocco's a nice player. Um, but I, I've been very critical of him, and that's more from a, a loss or fit on, like, a Warriors standpoint. Um, he is a good player, like, inarguably. But he's not a very good on-ball defender. And what are their Portland always has issues with all on ball defense against high level players in the playoffs. Damon yep. CJ aren't going to be improving in that area anytime soon. They're both small guards. Um, and I still don't understand why they haven't moved CJ for something. Um, it still does not make sense to me, especially for guys that can fit around Dame. Um, Cantor makes zero sense. Why bring him back? He's never does anything productive in the playoffs. Derek Jones Jr. We just talked about, I mean, he played like, I don't even know if he played a hundred minutes in the playoffs. 
Like he barely played. Um, he was a non-factor. He, I, all I remember is him checking in at the end of game one of the finals and LeBron patting his stats against him in the, in the post. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, Andre Godala couldn't make shots by the end of the finals. Like Miami had some injuries and he still wasn't getting minutes. They mm-hmm. could have theoretically kind of played him in a BAM role just because they needed some type of rim gravity as a roller. And they didn't even really try to do that when BAM was out. Um, so I just, they're going to be fine. They're probably a fringe playoff team again, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I could even see them missing it. I wouldn't bet on that because I think their roster is better than last year, but the West is also better than last year. Um, so I think that they got better. But did they get better relative to what the rest of the West did? I don't know. Well, to me, Dame off the ball, adding that Steph element of off ball activity is the biggest potential ceiling raiser for them. He said he's not going to do it. He already said he wasn't going to do it. Yeah, which there's your answer. But I mean, the the reality is, is that like, like I saw the Lakers take the ball out of Dame's hand. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I saw it. They they chased him over the top of every screen. Then they started blitzing him because he killed them in game one, yep. and and it basically neutralized their entire offense. Like that that's that's the reality of the Dame Lillard experience. It's the same thing that happened to happen to Jamal Murray. It's the same thing that's going to happen to Luca as teams get better. Like if you don't find a way to become either well with Luca, he beat it with the pass. But it's like if you don't have either unbelievable supreme passing ability. Mm-hmm. Or the ability to remain a threat off the ball. Luca can also he, go on the post too. Luca can go on the yeah. post. Damon and you know guys like Jamal Murray can't do. Exactly, but the, the like I always talk about how like you know someone shared a link the other day. Uh, it was one of your Warriors guys. I think it was Baltej, if I'm yep. pronouncing that correctly. Yep. He shared something about Zach Lowe from 2013. Yeah. Basically talking about how the Spurs were completely flummoxed by Steph Curry being such an, a deadly three-point shooter off the dribble because it was ruining their pick-and-roll coverages. It was rendering them obsolete. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think people were like really taking into account how outrageous what he was doing during those playoffs was because nobody was shooting threes off the dribble at that point. Like It just wasn't yeah. a thing. Um, so like, up, I think where you're going with this is teams have caught up to that now. Yeah, if you look throughout NBA history, offensive ratings go up and they go down and they go up and they go down. And the reason why, in my opinion, is offenses discover something that works and they start to exploit that and then defenses catch up. And then you're going to see you're going to see high volume three point shooting team high. uh, You're going to see teams that are heavy, heavily reliant on uh, a pull-up jump shooting guard. You're going to see teams like that start to struggle as defenses get really, really good. Because look at what the Lakers did last year. Every single team is going to start watching tape of that uh, yeah. to these teams because they neutralized a lot of these really, really good uh, on-the-ball scores. And they're, they're going to find a way to, to, uh, to mimic that. And all of a sudden, these teams are going to struggle. But then what's going to, what's going to happen is the offense is just going to evolve again. But anyway, yeah. my point is, is that like, that would be one of the ways that the Portland could raise their ceiling. And I just, yeah. as you said, Dame doesn't really seem interested in doing it. No. So uh, Phoenix, Chris Paul, Jay Crowder are the big ones. Yep. The, big re- the big reason why I'm excited about this team uh, and the reason why I see them as someone who could get as high as the three seed centers around uh, Jay Crowder, Cam Johnson, and Mikael Bridges. And the reason why is because we already know that Chris Paul can play alongside a ball-dominant shooting guard. Yep. We, we already know that Devin Booker can go toe-to-toe with some of the best players in the league on any given night and look better than them. We'll see how it works, looks in the playoffs. He's, like, a, he's a, like a dark horse to like maybe slide into the top 10 this year. You know, For sure. Top 10 players. Like it could happen. If he just keeps kind of going on that same upper trajectory, 
I could easily see it happening because he is a supremely talented scorer. Like if he gets 27 points a game efficiently and they get into the three or four seed and they end up making the second or third round of the playoffs, he's yep. he is a top 10 player. Like it's Absolutely. really Absolutely. But, but the key there is, as is the case with any of these teams, when you've got guys who aren't quite as good as the top tier players in the league, like Chris Paul, like Devin Booker, you need really, really good supporting pieces around them. Yep. And having guys like uh, Mikael Bridges, Mikael Bridges is a freaking is a freak of nature defensively. Like He's I've never unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. he was like giving Kawhi fits in some of those bubble games. Yeah. Kawhi wasn't really in great shape yet, but he was absolutely giving him fits. It was insane to watch. He was only a second year player. Yeah, it, it, it's ridiculous. And I, I watched. I remember seeing similar uh, him having similar effects against other big wings. He yep. gave a lot of problems to Bra- like Brandon Ingram. I'm so used to just bumping a guy off and shooting over the top, and like, and he literally would get it, like Brandon Ingram couldn't shoot over this guy. Yeah, Bridges has like that that strip down thing that Andre Iguodala always does. He's so mm-hmm. good at that. Like he, uh, he's gonna get two or three strip down seals, like basically a game at this point. Mm-hmm. So I love Mikael Bridges. Jay Crowder is just another big, strong guy to throw at those type of guys. And then uh, what I like about Cam Johnson is he's a fearless, gunning three-point shooter uh, who's got some size, so kind of like a Duncan Robinson type mold. And the reality with him is is that that's an ideal type of player as a spacing role, and his size makes him less of a defensive liability potentially over the course of the season. I like the supporting pieces that they have around Chris Paul and Devin Booker it makes sense. I think Chris Paul is somewhere around the 12th or 13th best player in the league still to this day. Yep. If, if Devin Booker actually is the ninth or 10th best player in the league, they have a duo that's up there with the top two or three duos in the league, even though it doesn't seem like it because Devin Booker has been stuck in, in, in son's hell for the last few years. So they're a team that I'm actually pretty optimistic about. Yeah, me too. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of this though, it depends on Deandre Ayton. Um, in my opinion, like, is he, defensively. The guy? yeah, defensively, like, is he the guy that we started to see kind of towards the end of last year where like, oh man, he can be like an impact defensive player, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he's like a to turn around the rim. He knows what he's doing, but his rookie year, it was really, really bad on that end. Mm-hmm. He was constantly lost. He didn't understand pick and roll coverages. He was jumping at shots that weren't even shots. It just shot fakes, uh, just all like all the typical rookie stuff. So if he continues on the same trajectory, uh, Chris Paul doesn't have too much of a decline. And then Devin Booker just kind of is the same guy almost. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you. Um, but I mean, I think they're another team with a wide range of outcomes, right? Um, you know, Booker kind of stagnates, Chris Paul shows like actual decline. Aiton doesn't take the next step. Uh, Cam Johnson isn't as valuable as, as you know, you would hope he would be. Um, and then Jay Crowder just kind of has a Jay Crowder year. Cause he's had a very up and down career. If people look closer at it, comes um, down if you make shots. Exactly. I mean, he's a good defender. Like he's always going to be a good defender as long as he's competitor he's, too. He's super competitive. Like he's, he's a guy that you want on your roster, undoubtedly. But if he just kind of has like a so-so year, it could also go really bad for them. Mm. Um, that's just I think that's just the nature of the West, man. We've said that about so many of these teams. It's just there's a huge range of potential the outcomes. Pacific Division <laughs> is insane. The Pacific oh, Division yeah. is an absolute nightmare. So yeah, good luck to anybody in that freaking division. Yeah, I know. Um, and last but not least, and then we'll get you out of here. So uh, Pelicans, they added Stephen Adams and Eric Bledsoe, and they lost Drew Holiday, and uh, they also lost um, uh, Favors. But so uh, I actually, and uh, Jason Maples has talked about this a lot. I like Drew Holiday as a player. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but the, I do think that his star and his career trajectory didn't really match up with the other players on the roster in the sense that like 
Like I, I think you need to lean heavily on Lonzo, lean heavily on Zion, lean heavily on Brandon Ingram to generate your offense because they're going to be the guys who are inevitably going to carry you down the down at the end. And Drew Holiday was just a little too aggressive for my liking offensively with that roster, which they'll need him to be in Milwaukee. But I didn't really like it as a natural fit in uh, uh, in New Orleans. And Eric Bledsoe can bring eighty percent of what Drew Holiday brought defensively uh, in that role. I, Steven Adams doesn't make a ton of sense to me in terms of uh, floor spacing with Zion, but you know I'd like to see it a little bit more before I make a call. Um, but they're a team that I think it entirely comes down to them defending because the reality is, is Brandon Ingram, in my opinion, has offensive talent that is up there with the top you know twenty players in the league. Yeah, and, and offensively, he's just as talented as Jason Tatum. I yeah. Mean, oh, absolutely. What's the difference? Really, there isn't much of one if we're just looking purely at the offensive end. Mm-hmm. And and he now he's he had defensive flashes when he was with LeBron. Sure. Uh, but that has just about dissipated in New Orleans. And then Zion Williamson had defensive flashes at Duke. Yeah, unbelievable just, defensive flashes. Yeah. That that is just about dissipated in New Orleans. So the reality is, is if those guys can defend. I don't think they're going to have much of a problem at all scoring, especially with J.J. Redick helping them spacing the ball and uh, um, uh, and with the fact that they're going to lean heavily on their young guy. Lonzo looked pretty good last night, too, in my opinion. Yep. But so, but at the end of the day, like this is a team like that I trust their the offensive talent of their key uh, two players. Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson are going to score a, a lot of points this year. But it's going to come down to whether or not they can guard, which historically young teams don't because they don't understand the benefits of it and they don't they haven't generated the NBA level instincts to be in the right places at the right time that allow you to be a good defense. Yeah, Um, I think just to kind of add on top of their additions, I think Stan Van Gundy was a good hire. Um, I like him, too. Yeah, I, I think he'll get them to play hard at the very least. He's been shown to get teams to do that. I think that Detroit situation was just it's the Pistons, right? That didn't work out. And I think also because he had. Uh, GM role. He was, I think, he was EVOP. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, trying to do both yes, things, it, it, focus. Yeah. it never works. It never ever works, especially in the NBA. There's been like no precedent for that ever working, um, mm-hmm. unless we're going back to like the 60s or 70s, which is entirely different conversation. Mm-hmm. But um, I understood the Adams move from the standpoint of just like not absolutely killing Zion with playing him too much at the five. But I didn't understand extending him. Like, what? Why are you giving the that extra was, at that number too? Yeah, was it two fifty? Is it two years? Fifty million? Um, I can't remember, but it was a lot. Yeah. It was yeah, a lot. It was, it was, it was, it was money. especially when you're going to have young guys that you need to resign, like Zion's, and maybe his his contract might be coming off the books right when Zion's extension eligible. Um, so that I mean, I guess it could work from that standpoint, but yeah, I didn't love the move, especially because you have already some primary guys who aren't great shooters anyway. In terms of Zion and Lonzo, like Lonzo's really streaky. Um, I think we've seen that B.I., there's enough of a sample size that he can shoot. Um, we can kind of confirm that. But if he's always driving into the paint with two or three guys there, that's it's just not going to look pretty. Um, so I probably don't think they're a playoff team yet. I think they're a couple years away at least. Um, at least in this West. I mean, they'd yeah. be a playoff team. Yeah, sure. If, if they're in the East, then I think it's an entirely different conversation. Um, hmm. But I don't I don't see their path to the playoffs this year out West, especially if if Harden ends up staying in Houston, which it doesn't seem like is going to happen. But if it does, they're a playoff team. Like they absolutely will be. Mm-hmm. Um, we know as much crap as I give Harden, if he's on your team, you're probably making the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, everything about his career tells us that. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think New Orleans are, they're a fun team. They're an exciting team, especially if Zion and, and BI and Lonzo stay healthy all year. Um, but they're not a playoff team yet, in my opinion. 
Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about them that I thought was exciting is uh, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is JJ Reddick's podcast. Um, mm-hmm. Because like for a couple of reasons, one, he's a total junkie. Like this is a guy oh, that yeah. he's a pro, but he's the opposite of the Darren Williams guy who just wants to go home and be with his family. Like this guy just yeah. lives and breathes basketball and he will play until they kick him out of the league. Absolutely. And, and uh, but one of the other things is he actually likes talking about basketball. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the NBA dudes who get into podcasting like to talk about, you know, music or they like to talk about, you know, business and that kind of thing. Cause they just want to get breaks from it, but he's a junkie. And one of the things he said the other day is he's like, I am amazed by how good Zion's handle looks. Oh, okay. And uh, you know, he, he always had a good handle. Yeah. Um, but it's when I was watching him last night, like, he gets so incredibly low to the ground and that in conjunction with his size and the fact that he has really, really good control over the ball makes him like one of the most deadly driving attack players that we've seen basically since LeBron when he was in his early twenties. Yeah. And so like to me, and, and I would the say idea of not leaning in on spacing didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think just to do like a quick LeBron comparison, I think, I remember watching early LeBron and he actually kind of struggled with touch around the rim early in his career, especially on like, you know, kind of like finger rolls and flips and stuff. Zion is actually already really good at that stuff. He has incredible dexterity for a guy, his size and his athleticism. Like it doesn't make sense. Um, so he's like, ability it, is ridiculous. It's insane. I don't think he had a dunk yesterday because they weren't letting him. And he just kept like going around people's bodies and scooping. And uh, it was ridiculous, man. It's crazy. Uh, he's already one of the, probably if he stays healthy, one of the, three or four best guys finishing at the rim in the league. And he's mm-hmm. 20, 21 years old. So um, mm-hmm. they definitely, they have a bright future, but they've got to, they've got to kind of figure out which direction they want to go. Cause they seem kind of aimless right now. Right. Like mm-hmm. moving off through holiday, probably good bringing in Steve Adams and then adding a couple years to his contract. That doesn't really make sense to me. So especially at that number. So we'll, we'll see. Um, but generally I am optimistic about their future. I just don't see it this year. Yeah, I believe in their future. It just this isn't the year, and and that that's where it, I I always say like like with, with these timelines, people have to be realistic and and understand like uh, the teams that win are the teams that push all their chips into the middle, yep. and when you push all your chips into the middle, it messes with your timeline. So chances are, like the the, the Golden State Warriors are the world teams that organically build to that. It requires yeah. a lot of good luck that usually doesn't break your way. Usually, one of your pl- draft picks won't pan out or. Usually the time the timing won't work, and so my thing is like if you, well, if they you just don't fit, the draft picks just don't fit together. Yeah, right? the play styles don't match. They could all be really good in players individually, but they just don't mesh. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love the Drew Holiday trade. That was that was David Griffin understanding like, hey, we're not going to go win this thing this year. Drew doesn't match up with our timeline. I'm better off putting the ball in Lonzo's hands a lot, Brandon Ingram's hands a lot, and Zion's hands a lot, and just seeing mm-hmm. how it goes. And if yeah. they make the playoffs, great, they'll learn. But if not, you know who cares. There, that that's not the timeline. Yep. Um, all right, dude, this was awesome. Uh, yep. uh, uh, we will do the entire Eastern conference on Friday. I think we're shooting for the same time if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll double check my schedule, but I think the same time should work. Perfect. Thank cool. you guys all so much for listening. Tommy, I will see you in a couple of days, man. All right, man. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.